the historical narrative is an act of the imagination by the historian. The putting of all that evidence into a coherent story of history, it's like writing a novel, except you are imprisoned by the facts. You can't make them up. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. Today, my guest is Columbia University historian Eric Foner. Professor Foner is one of America's most prominent historians. He received his uh, PhD at Columbia and uh, is only actually one of only two people to serve as president of three major professional organizations for historians. He's also one of a handful that have won both the Bancroft and Pulitzer Prizes in the same year. Eric Foner's publications have been all about intellectual, political, social history of American race relations, and especially around the Civil War, the run-up to the Civil War, and Reconstruction. He's written many many, many books that have become incredibly influential in the world of history and, in fact, in the public discourse as well. His most recent book is last year in 2019, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric Foner is also the winner of the Great Teacher Award from Columbia University graduates. He's won all sorts of awards from many different groups in New England, in Columbia, in New York, Society for Social Sciences, and the British Academy, American Philosophical Society, goes on and on and on. He's been on TV all sorts of times, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Fresh Air, All Things Considered. He's been on historical documentaries on PBS, on the History Channel, and he actually has been involved in several museum exhibitions that had to do with the Civil War and Reconstruction. He was the advisor. Most of the time, you know, when I get ready for a uh, SIDCAST episode, I do a little bit of preparation, you know, for each guest, but actually not all that much because I want to discover them in the same way that you're discovering them as you listen today. I want the SIDCAST to be organic, to be natural in a conversational format, not really a formal interview. But when it comes to Eric Foner, somehow I broke my own rule. Just Google his name and you discover an incredible number of references to him. But especially the one that jumped out is an online course that uh, is available for free for several years. And it's on the Civil War. It's on Abraham Lincoln. And it's on the period known as Reconstruction right after the Civil War. So when I saw that, naturally, I took a look. I'm a teacher myself and I wanted to see him in action. And the videos are really just Professor Foner in front of his class at Columbia lecturing, really part of his class in Civil War and Reconstruction. But I was watching maybe a handful of the 10-minute sessions, because each class is split up into these 10-minute groupings, and I was really captivated. I learned a lot of things I didn't know, and really in a short period of time, and I got a little bit more appreciation, not only for history, but the study of history. You know, like a lot of you, I remember studying history in high school, in college, and it was all about knowing what happened, what were the dates, who were the players, what was the result. And then, you know, in an advanced history class, the questions got a little bit better because the questions became about why. Why did people do what they did, which is, of course, what I'm always interested in. What I learned from Professor Foner is that when we talk about what we talk about in this episode is really what is history? You know that old expression, history is written only by the victors? Well, that's true, but it's not actually the full story because history is written by people, by historians. And they come at their subject with their own biases and their own histories of their own, their own influences and mindsets. And all of those things end up affecting how they interpret what actually happened. This is, of course, pretty much true in any situation. This is how people behave. It's something I've seen in my own work with executives and leadership and, in fact, in some of the 
work that I've done in research and books that I've done have nothing to do with history, but have to do with how to make better decisions. And it's remarkable how often our views are inevitably colored by who we are, by where we came from, and what our own experiences have been. And consider all that on top of occasionally you have a historian, a scholar like anyone else who has a particular political slant or point they're trying to make. And this was definitely true when it comes to the Reconstruction era. This is what Professor Foner says. In the past 20 years, no period of American history has been the subject of a more thoroughgoing re-evaluation than Reconstruction, the violent, dramatic, and still controversial era following the Civil War. Race relations, politics, social life, and economic change during the Reconstruction have all been interpreted in light of changed attitudes towards the place of African Americans within American society. If historians had not yet forged a fully satisfying portrait of Reconstruction as a whole, the traditional interpretation that dominated historical writing for much of the century has irrevocably been laid to rest. And as you'll hear in the episode when we get into this issue, so much of the history for a long, long period of time said, well, Reconstruction failed because the former slaves that had been set free, they just were not very good, not very capable. And of course, that's not at all what happened. There's so many other things that happened. And when you get into it, as Professor Foner has done, you discover, in fact, that it was a continuation of racial discrimination in all kinds of other ways. So Eric Foner is a terrific guest for me on the SIDCast for us. He's just a deep expert in his topic. As you'll see, he's very engaging and thoughtful. And I asked him not just about history, I asked him about the present day as well. And what are some of the lessons that come out of his research on Reconstruction as they apply today? So let's welcome into the SIDCast, Professor Eric Foner. This is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome back to the SIDCast. It's my pleasure to have the well-known and accomplished historian from Columbia University, Eric Foner, with us. Hello, Eric. It's nice to meet you. Hi, Sid. Thanks very much for having me here. It's a real pleasure for me as well. I want to know, actually, start off, how does one become a historian in the first place? How does that happen, even? Well, if one, probably a historian looking at the trajectory would say, oh, it was all inevitable. You know, things are always inevitable <laughs> after they happen. I grew up in a family of historians. My father was a historian. My uncle, Philip Foner, a very prolific historian. There was a lot of talk about history over our dining room tables, and I actually grew up hearing a lot about figures in history who were, let us say, not really emphasized very much. This is in the 1950s. Frederick Douglass, Tom Paine, Eugene Debs, the reformers and radicals, the labor activists. They weren't in the history books at all, really, at that time. But the fact is, I wanted to be a scientist. When I went to college, I was a physics major. Mm -hmm. For two years, I knew about history, but I didn't want to be a historian. But that changed for two or three reasons. One was I kind of ran out of ability, I suppose, in advanced calculus kind of torpedoed me. But more importantly, I think, first of all, I took a course with a very inspiring teacher, Jim Shent at Columbia. My, the first course I ever took in history, Civil War Reconstruction, a year-long seminar. And I'm still studying that period now, which I guess is an indication of how a teacher can really shape your life for you, an inspiring teacher. That's exactly right, which I know you have done for others as well. You hear it and you see it. It's many people I talk to, they tell me about how a teacher changed their life, their direction. Yeah, uh, Shannon definitely did that. But uh, the other point I wanted to make is this is now the early 60s when I'm in college, and the civil rights revolution is dominating the country's history. People are in the streets, and many of us younger people wanted to know where this came from, because the history we had been taught mm -hmm could not have led up to the present we were living in. We'd been taught that most of the problems had been solved in American society. Just little minor tweaks were necessary here and there. And 
that led a lot of us to start thinking about the history of slavery, which was is today a central part of the study of history, but was not really emphasized very much back then. The history of race, the post-Civil War period, Reconstruction, what happened. And so it was really trying to figure out how we got to where we were that turned me into a historian. Right. Yeah, and you know what also is interesting? The sociologist uh, George Stinscombe once wrote about imprinting and how people are imprinted by certain experiences, particularly early in their careers. And I think what you're describing is how kind of the social culture around you, and of course your family, your home life, talking about your father, had this right. imprinting effect on what you ended up doing your entire career. Absolutely. I think that's very important. On the other hand, I suppose one also has to move beyond it eventually. In other words, the imprinting cannot just remain static for the rest of your life. So my approach to history has changed enormously since the days I was in college and graduate school. Not that there was anything wrong then. My mentor, supervisor, was Richard Hofstadter, one of the great historians of that era. Mm -hmm. And I learned an enormous amount from him. But as time went on, my approach to history began to move in a more social history direction, looking more at African-American history, which someone like Hofstadter was certainly not interested in that much. So anyway, Mm -hmm. that period had an enormous effect on me. Now, could you say a little bit more about your father? So he was a successful historian, but he had some troubles as well that happened. And I think they had a big influence on you. Oh, my father was an early victim or a pre-McCarthy victim of McCarthyism mm-hmm. in 1941 wow. when Joe McCarthy was whatever he was doing <laughs> in the war or whatever. My father was teaching in the city colleges of New York City, the city university, and he and a group of maybe 30 or 40 were fired, basically, as a result of a legislative investigation of uh, so-called communist influences in the city university system. And he was blacklisted. All the time I was growing up, he could not get a teaching job for about 25 years. He finally was able to get a teaching job in the mid-60s up at Colby College in Maine, where he taught for about eight years and then had to retire. But all I can say is that I didn't realize until much later what a terrible burden that was to be deprived of your livelihood and your profession in a way. But I also, I guess, grew up understanding how fragile liberty is in our country or any other country, presumably, Mm. and that there are many aspects of American society which need to be improved or changed, and I certainly have held that view my whole life. So I admired my father enormously. He made his living as a freelance lecturer, basically. But he was a great teacher, and I learned an enormous amount about teaching from him. That's also interesting, because I want to ask you about that a little bit later. Did he ever sit you down and talk to you about history in general, and maybe more specific, what really was going on with him? Because you said it was only later that you really, really understood what penalty he paid in terms of career. No, my father, you know, look, every kid growing up thinks his home life is normal, you know, that this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And the thing about my father that I think is most admirable is he did not become embittered nor did he succumb to pressures to save himself by chucking other people overboard. He was not one of those who would name names, save Mm -hmm. your own career by indicting other people. He would not do that. But on the other hand, as I say, he kept this optimistic, this sort of old left optimistic faith in ordinary people, in Mm -hmm. democracy, in the future. And that's what I grew up with, in a sense, this notion that no matter how things were, it was possible to try to make them better. Right, which is a very positive, hopeful message to have in mind, and it helps people try to get through whatever is going on. You mentioned briefly you were interested, or you got interested in civil rights, living through that and trying to understand where it came from, and that brought you back. I mean, did that bring you back 
to the Reconstruction era, the Civil War and the Reconstruction era? Or was there a path that got you there and you got to realize this is really what we need to study? Well, originally it got me back to the pre-Civil War period and you might say the politics of anti-slavery. I mean, this was the 60s. I don't need to tell you this was a volatile moment. There were all sorts of political activities going on on campus and off campus, a kind of a full-fledged youth rebellion by the mid-60s. And I became interested in the anti-slavery movement of the 1850s, and actually the Republican Party before the Civil War, that was my dissertation, their ideology, how they mobilized to oppose the westward expansion of slavery, things like that. In other words, how politics became a vehicle for far-reaching social change. Again, that's imprinted on me by what was going on Mm. in the country. Reconstruction is part of that story, but actually my delving into that came as a kind of serendipity in the 70s. I was teaching at City College at that time. I received a call completely out of the blue from Richard Morris, a great historian who was the editor of a series from Harper and Rowe called the New American Nation series, one book on each period of American history. And he said, you know, David Donald, a very important historian of that generation, was supposed to write the book on Reconstruction in this series, but he's dropped out. Would you Hmm. interested in writing that book. And I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, in a way, I just accepted it without quite realizing what I was taking on. I had read Du Bois's great book, Black Reconstruction in America, in Jim Shenton's class, actually, at Columbia. But I had very little notion of what kind of research would be involved. I thought I would write that book in two or three years. It took 10 years from the late 70s to the late 80s. And because I kind of decided I was going to write it from the ground up, in other words, from research, from primary research. Most of the books in that series are what they call syntheses, where you take the work of the scholarship of others and try to mold it into your own narrative. There's nothing wrong with that. But I quickly discovered that many of the questions I was interested in were not being dealt with by the existing literature. And so I spent a lot of time in archives in the South and indeed the whole country. But I also thought I came to really believe, and Du Bois, of course, had made this point, that what people think about Reconstruction really matters. It's not just an arcane historical debate. The issues of Reconstruction are the issues of today. Citizenship, voting rights, terrorism, Ku Klux Klan, not Osama bin Laden, but homegrown terrorism, Uh, relations of the federal and state governments, the rewriting of the Constitution, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. In other words, I wanted to really tell this story so that people would realize why Reconstruction is important and why understanding it is really essential if you want to know something about American society today. So that's one of the reasons it took me a long time. I wanted this to be a really full account of that era. So you've written that there was a view about Reconstruction that had been in place for a while, and much of those ideas have gone by the wayside as new research, a lot of it your own, but others as well, has come to different conclusions on what Reconstruction was, why it went wrong, what the lessons are. Could you share a little bit about first, what did people think, and what was the common sense from historical analysis, and then what did you begin to discover? Yeah, this is what we call historiography, which often hearing that people think about going to sleep, but it's actually (laughs) very important. Well, for the first half or more, really, of the 20th century, thinking about Reconstruction was dominated by what we call the Dunning School, based on my long-ago predecessor at Columbia, William A. Dunning, who taught the Civil War era of 1900 in that period. But anyway, they saw Reconstruction as the lowest point in the history of American democracy, a time of corruption, misgovernment, vindictiveness. The villains were the radical Republicans in Congress who, according to this view, tried to kind of impose northern control and capitalist control on the defeated South. 
But the biggest error, mistake, crime of Reconstruction, according to this, was giving the right to vote to African-American men in the South and then the whole nation, actually. Before the Civil War, only a tiny, tiny number of African-Americans could vote anywhere in the country. Now in Reconstruction, you had what they called black supremacy, black domination. And why did that lead to misgovernment? Because black people are just incapable, according to these scholars, of exercising democratic rights intelligently. You know, that was the high point of racist ideology in our country. And notions of racial inferiority were deeply embedded in the writing of history, in the writing of sociology, political science. So Reconstruction was a warning. By that point, black people had been, the right to vote had been taken away in the South, and the Jim Crow system was fully in place. And this view of Reconstruction was really a kind of part of the legitimation of the Jim Crow system, the subordination of blacks, the violation of the Constitution in the South for many, many years. Because the point really was this, if you gave African Americans back their basic civil and political rights, the horrors of Reconstruction would reappear again. Reconstruction was the warning of what would happen if black people were part of American democracy. And that view held all the way into the 1950s. The civil rights movement destroyed the underpinnings of that interpretation because overt racism was just no longer politically and intellectually acceptable. So when I was writing, the old view had been sort of taken apart, but that's not the same thing as saying what actually did happen. And so in a way, my job was to Mm -hmm. not only critique the previous historians, but to develop a different narrative. If you want to find out what happened in Reconstruction, it's not enough to say, well, it wasn't what Dunning was talking about. I put forward a different narrative with roots in the work of a lot of other people, of course. But so today, I think most historians see Reconstruction as a tragic era, as the old scholars said, but tragic because it failed. It was like a precursor of the civil rights era. It was the first attempt to make this a genuine interracial democracy. And the tragedy is not that it was attempted, but that it failed. And that left for a century almost this question of racial justice in the United States. That's why my book, the subtitle is called The Unfinished Revolution, Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, that the agenda Mm. of Reconstruction was still there when I was writing. And in some ways, it's still there right today. One of the underpinnings of what you're describing, if we generalize beyond the Reconstruction era, maybe this is what you mean by historiography, is kind of like history is in the eye of the beholder. People interpret, we're not saying anything new. We know from lots of research has nothing to do with history, has to do with psychology and cognitive psychology. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for some of his work. You know, the biases that each of us harbors in our heads, how we think is heavily influenced by our upbringing and by all sorts of other things. There's a not only a psychological, but a psychoanalytical side to this. And so what really is quote unquote reality? How do you know what that is? And today, if you think about it, If I read the Wall Street Journal editorial page and I read the New York Times editorial page talking about exactly the same thing, I am in two different worlds. And I almost feel like I got to go to the source material myself as a citizen to try to understand what's going on. And that's a little bit crazy, but that's kind of what I'm getting from kind of the battles that have been going on and historically. Could you say a little bit about that? Well, you're right, of course, but I am old fashioned to the extent that I think reality does exist, actually. It's not just a discourse. It's not just a set of prejudices or presuppositions. But of course, you're right that, well, as E.H. Carr said in his book, What is History? To study history, study the historian. The historian brings presuppositions, assumptions. Everybody does, and there's nothing wrong with that. I used to tell my students, you know, what does it mean to be objective? They would say, is anyone objective, professor? I said, well, 
Being objective does not mean you have an empty mind. Who would like to hear from someone who has no ideas, no opinions? No, it means you have an open mind. You have to be willing to change your mind. If the research, the going to the sources that you mentioned, shows that some of your assumptions are really not grounded, in fact. Now, today, as you said, we are stuck in a highly polarized political situation where Republicans and Democrats seem to live in different realities. I don't care what issue you're talking about. They just differ enormously. Fox News and MSNBC live in different realities. Wall Street Journal, etc., New York Times. Mm -hmm. As scholars, though, we have to hope and argue that it is possible to get to approximations of the truth, not truth with a capital T. History is an ongoing process of reevaluation, reinterpretation. There is never just the end of the story. Okay, here's the truth, and there's nothing more to be said anymore. There's always new perspectives and new questions. But we have to hope and think that we are getting closer and closer to an accurate representation of the past. But of course, a lot of people don't want to hear that. I mean, look at the debates about, let's say, the Confederate flag. What does that stand for? To me, as a historian, to most historians, it's slavery. You know, they didn't beat about the bush, the Confederates. We are a slave-owning republic, and we're seceding to preserve slavery. But today, a lot of people display Confederate flags, and if you say, that's a flag of slavery, they'll say, no, 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 of course, I don't believe in slavery. That's horrible. No, this is about rebelliousness or get the government off my back or some sort of other principle, which there is some truth in that, but you cannot dissociate the Confederacy from slavery. No historian would allow that anymore, but certainly many, many people in our country, North and South, still associate the Confederacy with things other than slavery. So there are various realities out there. I'm thinking out as you're speaking, how positive are you about the current political discourse and the direction that America is going in, in light of these historical underpinnings and what you just said about the Confederate flag, and it's one of many, many issues. And then we have this incredible dichotomy of views on everything. And and now this term fake news, everyone knows it, and many people are using it for their own purposes on all sides now. I mean, can we be hopeful about the direction we're going in? You want me to solve this problem? Yeah, I wouldn't mind that, but at least make us feel better. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my view on many things comes from a saying associated with Antonio Gramsci, the Italian political philosopher, activist, who said, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. Mm. You have to have both. There are many aspects of our society today which lead to pessimism, no question. Our democracy is pretty dysfunctional in important ways. Part of it is this extreme dialogue going on of differences on everything. A part of it is active efforts to actually suppress the right to vote or to make it more and more difficult for people to actually have an impact on the political system. So that's not a cause for optimism at all, but optimism of the will is the thought that these things can be changed. It's kind of weird that the loudest voices are the ones that are most polarized, but public opinion polls suggest there is more common ground out there than perhaps the political discourse in Congress or the presidency or other such places might lead one to suspect. One has to hope so. We're coming up to an election in a while in this country, which will really, I think, be a major turning point. I don't want to get into a long political discourse here, but if President Trump is reelected, given all that has happened under his
his presidency in the first term. I think that's a serious problem for our democracy in the sense that people want him back. The first time people voted for Trump, there he could have been anything. I mean, nobody knew really what he stood for or believed. Now, it's, you know, it's what you see is what you get. You may think it's great, you may think it's horrible, but there's no secrets or surprises anymore. So if he's reelected, if a majority of the country votes for him, given what we know, you know, I think we live in a world where people seem to, in many countries, seem to want sort of strong men who are not really believers in democracy, but are believers in authority and power, whether it's Xi or Putin or Obron, or you can go through the world naming these strong men who are out there. Mm -hmm. Trump is modeling himself on that also. Now, we have a pretty robust constitutional system to prevent that, but nonetheless, it is fraying in important ways. Anyway, I'm not going to predict the future here, so we can, (laughs) let's uh, leave that. Let's go back to the reconstruction. And you said earlier, some of the lessons that have come out of that are absolutely playing out today. And that's kind of a good segue maybe back to that topic. You mentioned terrorism, domestic terrorism, voting rights as well. I'm curious about what was going on then, and then maybe thinking about how that's playing out today in the present political environment. Yeah, the thing about Reconstruction that to me is so important and fascinating is that the fundamental question facing the country was, what are the consequences of the abolition of slavery? Four million people became free who had been slaves before the Civil War. What was going to be their status in American society? What did it mean to be a free person? Reconstruction is one of the few times when the fundamental structure of the society is up for debate. What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? What rights come along with that? Before the Civil War, citizenship was tied to race. You know, the Supreme Court and Dred Scott said only white people can be citizens of the United States. Black people are just not part of this country. Now you have four million people. Are they going to be citizens? Are they not? Is anybody born in the United States a citizen? I mean, that is put into the Constitution in the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship. It didn't exist before the war. Who should have the right to vote? Eventually, the Constitution is rewritten, the 15th Amendment, so that African-American men throughout the country are given the right to vote. As I mentioned before, very few had, had the right to vote at all before the Civil War, just in a handful of New England states where there were very few black people. So in other words, those questions, not just specific policy, but more philosophical questions. Who is an American? What does it mean to be an American? Can we move beyond the tyranny of race and imagine a country where basic principles apply to everybody? Those are the reconstruction questions. And certainly we are still thinking about those questions today. I mean, President Trump himself first became a political figure via this so-called birther movement, claiming that President Obama was not an American. Now, to historians, this is old news. This is not surprising. Throughout American history, there have been people who claim African-Americans are just not Americans. They're not citizens. They shouldn't be citizens. They should go somewhere else. This is just the rehashing of an old, old trope that this is a white man's country. And as, again, Dred Scott put this about as starkly as anybody could, you know, Chief Justice Tony said, the black man has no rights which the white man is bound to respect. Is that still the case? Well, not exactly, but uh, certainly there are many deep racial divisions in this country, and that's one of the troublesome, you might say, comparisons between Reconstruction and the moment we're living. Yeah, I was listening to or watching some of your MOOC on your course on the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is excellent and available online. We'll have the link in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, take a look. And one of the things I think you said there is that Reconstruction is more political and even moral than almost any other subject. And I think that's what you're referring to now, aren't you? It's a statement about what kind of country is America? What what kind of country should America be? Yes, I was doing online teaching before there was a virus or anything like that. 
I am, you are an innovator. Yeah, well, I'm not a believer that all education should be online. I still believe the teacher in a classroom is a valuable resource. But on the other hand, you know, that's just a lecture course the last time before I retired that I gave that lecture course. And it's watched by thousands of people. I mean, it's astonishing to me all over the world. It's not the same as being in a room, but I have people in Australia, South Africa, England, France, Germany writing to me emails. Oh, you know, I'm enjoying this lecture on Reconstruction or the Civil War. It's a remarkable opportunity to disseminate my view of history. That's our job as scholars, to disseminate knowledge. I love that you said that. Technology yeah. enabling you to disseminate knowledge in ways that you could never have conceived of beforehand. Mm -hmm. So, And it's out there forever. Long after I'm gone, those things will be right. out there right. somewhere. I like the words that you just used, because when people ask me, what do you do as a professor? What's your job? And, and my answer is creation and dissemination right. of knowledge. On You fill in the topic that you try to be an expert on. And that's what you've done. And also, one of the things I learned from watching the MOOC is that civil rights movements and changes were made by the federal government and the courts, and it actually did not need a constitutional amendment. In other words, the rights in the Constitution are actually not self-enforcing. You got to do something about that. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that right. in the context uh, of Reconstructionism. And well, my most recent book, which came out in 2019, is about the three constitutional amendments of Reconstruction, 13th, 14th, and 15th. The 13th irrevocably abolished slavery throughout the country. The 14th did many things, establishing birthright citizenship, equal protection of the law for all persons in the U.S. These were radical changes in the Constitution. And the 15th tried to guarantee the right to vote for African-American men. If you jump a century later to the civil rights movement, right, what you said, they didn't need constitutional amendments for the civil rights movement. They needed the Constitution we had since Reconstruction to be enforced by somebody. And as you said, the Constitution is not self-enforcing. And for a long time, it's a worrisome fact that for a long time, this country acquiesced in the abrogation of the Constitution in the southern states. And the Supreme Court played an important role in that, in just allowing segregation, disenfranchisement, discrimination in all sorts of ways to take place in the South with no federal enforcement to the opposite. So, yeah, the Civil Rights Movement demanded that the Constitution be Enforce. But then there's also the question of what do these general principles mean in practice? What is equal protection of the law? You know, not a simple thing to define, or many people have different concepts of what that actually means. What are the privileges or immunities of citizens? 14th Amendment says no state can deny a citizen of the privileges or immunities. Well, what comes along with being a citizen? I mean, these issues are still being adjudicated. A, couple, a few months ago, there was a case in Michigan using the 14th Amendment to say citizens have a right to a basic education. If you are not given a basic education, you are being denied one of the liberties that goes along with citizenship. And that's a 14th Amendment decision, and it opens up the door to challenging unequal education, which is rampant throughout this country. That's a form of enforcement that hasn't happened before. So yes, enforcement of the Constitution is critical, but you know, my book is called The Second Founding. It's trying to emphasize the point that these changes in Reconstruction, they weren't just a minor alteration of an existing system. They really created a new constitution based on protecting the rights of citizens. That's not what the original constitution was all about. And so we should think of the Reconstruction Constitution as a new constitution, not just a couple of amendments to something from 1787. 
Mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit more in time to Abraham Lincoln and how Lincoln became Lincoln. How in the world did that ever happen? Because I think he was something of a, an Obama type character in the sense that he wasn't a big name, he wasn't a big success, and then he exploded into the public scene and became acknowledged as one of the greatest presidents in the history. Yeah, I wrote a book about Lincoln 10, 12 years ago, The Fiery Trial, which was exactly about this question. How did Lincoln become Lincoln? Now, you know, as one reviewer said of my book, there's this Lincoln industrial complex out there. There are thousands <laughs> of books about Lincoln. There are forums and uh, associations and the societies about Lincoln. There are conferences about Lincoln every year. Uh, you know, it's a giant industry. But much of it, and there are many, many good scholars there, but often your question is not even asked. It's just, well, Lincoln was born with a pen in his hand, ready to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, you know? <laughs> So, in fact, my book got some pushback because my book is based on growth. How did Lincoln grow and change over the course of his life? Mm-hmm. And some people didn't like that. Well, if he had to grow, he didn't start out perfect then. So, you know, we want him to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Putting that aside, Lincoln, it is hard to explain, but I think one thing about Lincoln is really just character. I hate to put it in such a simple way, but this was a guy who figured out early in life that the way to get ahead was through learning. He had a one year of schooling in his whole life, but he was constantly learning. And he somehow had this intelligence, but also a pretty thick skin. He didn't mind people criticizing him. You know, we've had many presidents, including the current one, who cannot stand criticism. Lincoln welcomed it. He thought he could learn. He thought that his entire life he could learn new things. And he did. And he changed on questions related to race. He changed in very significant ways. He shared many of the prejudices of his era before the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, he really had developed, I think, a serious compassion for the former slaves. He was now advocating the right to vote for many of them, other rights. He was not an abolitionist in that sense, but he was a person who was always taking on new ideas and listening to critics, but thinking for himself. This is a guy who grew up on the frontier and yet didn't share the culture. He stood apart from it. He didn't hate Indians like so many people out in frontier Indiana did. He didn't like hunting with a rifle. He didn't drink. He didn't like liquor. That was unusual out there. He developed his own standards, in other words. And yet he also listened to people. So I think he had the character which made it possible to rise to the occasion, the crisis. Nobody could have predicted the crisis that Lincoln faced when he became president. Compare him to his successor, Andrew Johnson, who became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Johnson was the opposite, deeply racist, stubborn, unwilling to listen to criticism, unable to work with Congress, not knowledgeable about public sentiment or what people were thinking, never changing his mind. He lacked any of the qualities of greatness that Lincoln faced. And he faced a great crisis, too, the crisis of Reconstruction. But he sank beneath the waves, you might say. He could not deal with it. In a way, it's this combination of individual character and a crisis situation that shows you what a person is or isn't made of. One of the things that is really interesting is, and I learned about this again from your MOOC, is the Lincoln-Douglas debates back in 1858. Why were these so famous? Why was that such a holiday? Well, you know, first of all, they were debates about a Senate race, but it's interesting to compare them to what pass for debates today, you know, presidential Mm -hmm. debates, which are absurd. (laughs) Uh, They're mostly a forum for the questioners to get publicity for themselves and catch the candidate out in some misstatement. This was a different political world. 10,000 people would show up in a small town in Illinois and listen to these two figures debating 
What were they debating? They were debating about slavery. They were debating about the future of black people. They were debating about what kind of country this is. The first guy spoke for an hour. This was not question and answer. The first guy spoke for an hour. The second one then had an hour and a half. And then the first one rebutted with half an hour. So it's a three-hour event. Attention spans were a little different back then than they are today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were widely publicized in the newspapers. The Telegraph now enabled the texts or the, you know, to be circulated around the country instantaneously. They were then published in a book, which was widely read. They made Lincoln a national figure. We remember, if we do, Stephen A. Douglas as the guy who debated Lincoln. That's wrong. Lincoln was the guy who debated Douglas. That's what made him well-known. Douglas was the most important political leader of the 1850s, the leader of the Democratic Party. Debating with him elevated Lincoln to a national stature, which he didn't have before. People in the East suddenly heard of this guy, Lincoln, who fought Douglas basically to a draw in the debate and then in the election. Douglas was elected, but back then it was the legislature that elected the senator and So in terms of popular vote, they were even. So they're a remarkable time at a time when political discourse today seems to be at a fairly low ebb. Here you had politicians. Yeah, they're not philosophers. They're politicians. But they are seriously debating the nature of liberty, the nature of slavery, the nature of the federal system, race. That's why they're important, because they show that it is possible for politics to take place on a somewhat higher level than we have today. It's very interesting that this happened 150, 160 years ago, but so many people heard about it. And today, everything is televised and Twitter is going crazy at the same time. Then there's endless media going on. And I don't know whether we actually know more about what happened today than if we lived 160 years ago with a slower process. He said it was fast because of the telegraph, but obviously not what we see today. Today, you know, we even call it the spin room on CNN or whatever. It's yeah. all about spinning. They had spin back then, and one shouldn't, maybe I've been guilty here, of romanticizing a little mm. too much. You mentioned before the Wall Street Journal editorial page yes. in the New York Times. Newspapers then were closely tied to a political party. They, they represented a political party. If you read a Democratic newspaper and a Republican newspaper account of one of these debates, you would not know you were hearing about the same event. In one of them, Lincoln wiped the floor with Douglas. He just showed him to be not lacking in knowledge and prejudice, and Douglas was speechless by the end. That's the Republican press. The Democratic press, oh no, Douglas destroyed Lincoln. Lincoln is a gawky, gorilla-like fellow who doesn't even know anything. He's just a country bumpkin. He shouldn't even be running. He can't answer Douglas's criticism. Yes, there were alternative realities back then also. Even the texts that were published, now they were taken down by stenographers, you know, but the texts were somewhat different in Republican newspapers and Democratic newspapers. Later, when they were issued as a book, Lincoln at least went over it very carefully, trying to make sure at least his speeches were pretty accurate. So yeah, there were alternative realities back then also. But today, yes, the internet, I'm old enough to remember when the internet came in and everybody said, this is going to be the greatest thing for the spread of ideas and it's so democratic. Anybody can put their ideas out there without it to be rich, you know, to own a newspaper, just post your ideas and it'll be a whole democratic world of discourse. It didn't turn out quite that way. Nobody anticipated the internet to be a giant garbage, which in some ways that's what it has become, with other many valuable aspects also. 
Of course. You're reminding us of just how polarized the press was in that era as well, depending what you read for a Republican or a Democratic type newspaper or whatever. But it makes me wonder and ask how the historian does his or her job, because you can't go back and interview anyone. So you only have secondary sources. You could read the speeches, which obviously you did. You would read the press, which obviously you did. But how do you kind of get to a conclusion on this? You also read the correspondent. And one thing, having denounced the internet, I will say is nowadays, it's an incredible the amount of source material that's online and available to you. Every letter written to Lincoln is available online through the Library of Congress. When I was a younger historian, I'd have to go to the Library of Congress and go through all those letters. Fair enough. But now I can sit in my living room or wherever. But that's the task of the historian. What can I say? That's what makes you a historian. You have to be able to weigh evidence, judge evidence, balance things out. These are not, it's not a statistical analysis. Well, 25 letters to Lincoln said, you did a great job. And 18 said, no, you did a terrible job. And so that's the balance. No, the historian, that's an interesting fact, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. So you just try to do as much research as you possibly can. Keep an open mind, test your hypotheses against the evidence. And then, of course, my view, history is a literary art, a literary endeavor. I've always opposed at Columbia the fact that History is in the social sciences division. It's not a science. It should be in the humanities. It has much more to do with literature than social science. The historical narrative Hmm. is an act of the imagination by the historian. The putting of all that evidence into a coherent story of history, it's like writing a novel, except you are imprisoned by the facts. You can't make them up, one hopes. But it's like that. It's putting what you leave out is as important as what you put in. And as I said before, it's not truth with a capital T, but there are standards. And if you do not meet the standards, other historians will hold you accountable. If you haven't done enough research, if you haven't taken into account all the different aspects of a debate or a society or whatever it is, people will point that out. It's not like you can just put it out there and there's no pushback. So you have to hold yourself to the standards of the historical profession. And if you don't, people won't take your book seriously. The funny thing is, even though there are all these different points of view out there about history, the cream does rise to the top. The books that are highly regarded are highly regarded by everybody. And the books that are kind of dismissed as not quite up to standard, that's a pretty widespread view also. So there must be some standard for judging whether history is persuasive or not. But that's a whole other issue I find really interesting about a marketplace, in a sense, for ideas and which ones rise to the top. But back to Lincoln, though. So you said he lost the Senate race, but he then became the candidate for the Republican Party yeah. for the presidential race. Yeah. Well, two years later, you know, as I said, it made him a national figure. And back then, as now, there were swing states. He came from Illinois. Illinois was a swing state. The Democrats had carried it in 1856. The Republicans needed it in 1860. Lincoln is from Illinois, that he's very strategically located. If Lincoln had been from Maine, he wouldn't have been such a formidable candidate. Mm -hmm. Maine was going to go Republican no matter who they ran. But you mentioned Obama before. When Obama was president, when he was running, there were comparisons of Lincoln and Obama. Obama kind of played on that a little. Remember when he was inaugurated the first time, he used the Bible Lincoln had used to be sworn in. Uh, They're both from Illinois. But the real analogy or the real comparison is that both of them became national figures through oratory, through speeches. Lincoln had not held any public office for 10 years. He was in war. He was in Congress in 1846 to 48. 
Then he's out of office until he's elected president in 1860. So it's not like he had a great record of political achievement. And Obama, well, he was in the Senate for a couple of years, but not legislature. But people didn't vote for Obama because he had proven himself to be a great lawmaker. It was speeches by both of them. Lincoln's great speeches about slavery, not just the debates, but his other speeches throughout the 1850s, condemning slavery, calling for an end to its expansion. Obama's speeches at the Democratic National Convention, remember, and other places, made them into national figures. And Lincoln was nominated for one reason, which was he could win. They thought he could win. In the middle of the party, too, there were radical Republicans, there were conservative Republicans. Lincoln was a mainstream Republican. But he was acceptable to everybody. He was like the second choice of the radicals, the second choice of the conservatives. And so once the leaders of those other factions could not get a majority at the convention, Lincoln rose to the fore. And we don't have conventions like that anymore, which go to more than one ballot and where people are kind of making deals about, well, if your state votes for this guy, we'll give this fellow the secretary of state position or something like that. But it is a pretty remarkable rise, considering that Lincoln hadn't really done much politically for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to ask you about this, but you just triggered the thought about the primary process that we have now and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Now, that opens it up to the population. Lincoln would never be nominated today. I think we can certainly say that. That's what I'm thinking, because you go through this process and it's endless so-called debates, I'll say in deference to your description of what a real debate was a long time ago, but it enables the motivated electorate, which is a small, small percentage, to have an unbelievable influence. And it leads to candidates that might not otherwise get. This is one of those situations of unintended consequences, let's say, or good <laughs> intentions gone bad. The primary system was the product really of the progressive era in the early 20th century. Reformers were fed up with political bosses controlling politics, controlling nominations. They were fed up with corruption. So the primary system was supposed to take the selection of candidates out of the hands of political bosses and give it to the electorate. They also put in things like the recall system, where you could get rid of a politician if you didn't like him, and the referendum, where citizens would vote on laws, not just the members of legislatures. That has gone completely haywire. I mean, if you're in California, you're always voting on these crazy initiatives. You may have a dozen of them on the ballot. Who knows what the heck they're even about? So they destroy the political bosses. But politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. So who moved into the vacuum? This is a long story. Is the corporations. It's money. You know, so instead of the party bosses choosing the candidates, now you've got to spend all your time raising money. Lincoln didn't have to go around when he was running, raising money for his candidacy. The party provided the money, provided the organization, etc. But as that declined, are we more democratic today when there's this infinite amount of money being spent on every race from dog catcher to president? The smoke-filled room, the gatherings of political leaders from various parts of the country at these conventions to hammer out who should be the choice didn't do so badly in many cases. And certainly, as I say, today our democracy is not totally functional, I think. So, yeah, the primary system allows new views. It allows a guy like Bernie Sanders to come to the fore, which would have been impossible otherwise. On the other hand, it also allows a guy like Trump to come in and just take over the party. He was not a Republican. He had no political experience. And yet somehow he comes in and most of the political leaders were appalled, although the Republicans have certainly made their peace with him. So I'm not saying we should go back to the smoke-filled room, but it certainly cost a lot less money the way they nominated people back then. <laughs> Your point about unintended consequences is almost always true and certainly yeah. is the case now. What does it take to be a president? 
from a historical point of view, not just about Trump or Bernie or Biden or any of the others, because you mentioned the incredible oratorical skills of a Lincoln, of an Obama, and that they were both not that well known and they rose to the very top. And you mentioned Bernie and you mentioned Trump. Well, Trump is only one of the two that's the president and how he came out of, I won't say nowhere because he was everywhere on TV, but certainly unconventional and not the usual skill set we would think of. So what does it take? If we look at our 44 or whatever it is presidents, I think you have to say that most of them were mediocrities, I'm sorry to say. Maybe we don't really need a president as much as we think. (laughs) Benjamin Harrison, we're going to start discussing the contribution of the administration of Benjamin Harrison or Warren G. Harding or John Tyler or, you know, historians have this game where we rank the president. This is a typical thing. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln and George Washington always pop up at the very top. Down at the bottom is James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson nowadays, Nixon. Most of them are sort of in the middle, really. They're kind of amorphous. As I say, many of them are not really that impressive. On the other hand, some did a pretty good job. So what does it take to be president? I'm not what they call a presidential historian, even though I wrote about Lincoln. I think you need a political party behind you, although that seems to be changing because of money. Money takes the place of a highly organized political party. But certainly for most of American history, if you didn't have a political party behind you, you couldn't really operate as president. John Tyler, the people who came in after the death of the president and had been put on the ticket to balance them, suddenly can't, you know, John Tyler came in after William Henry Harrison. The party didn't want him. He couldn't really govern. Andrew Johnson came in after Lincoln. He was not really a Republican. The party didn't want him. He couldn't really accomplish anything. You have to have character of some kind, like Lincoln did, certainly. But when Eisenhower was president, people would say, well, we don't really need much of a president now. Things are kind of calm and stable. The real issue is what happens in a crisis. You know, it seems like we have a deep state, if you want to call it that, which just sort of runs the government, the bureaucracy, and uh, things just go along. What happens in a crisis? That's where you judge a person, whether it was the Civil War, the Great Depression, of Roosevelt, the yeah. COVID-19 crisis earlier this year. How people respond to that, it tells you a lot about them. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way. Yes. I've always said when it comes to CEOs and other business leaders, in large companies, things are going to keep on going. We wouldn't say the deep state, maybe we'll say the bureaucracy. I don't know what we'll say, but it keeps on going. But there are times of crisis when the whole company is on the line, if you make the wrong decisions. And uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, yeah, actually, even for the whole country, there's some truth to that when it comes to prison. Yeah, I think so. Luckily, we haven't had that many deep, deep crises. We've had wars, terrible wars, obviously, and many misjudgments on the part of presidents. You know, when George W. Bush, one of the few things that I've written that I kind of regret having written was a little editorial at the time when George W. Bush was president, and I was very angry about the Iraq war and things like that. And I wrote a little op-ed thing somewhere, why George Bush is the worst president in American history. And somebody (laughs) in USA Today, there was an interview with him right after that, and somebody the reporter said, Mr. President, this historian here, Eric Foner, has said you're the worst president in American history. What do you think of that? And Bush said the right thing, actually, to his credit. He said, future historians will judge that. This is not the moment to judge that in the middle of a can. And he was right, of course. And um, he doesn't look all that bad anymore somehow. I don't know how that happened. My ex-professor at Oxford of American history, Harry Pitt, used to say, Pitt's law of presidents. Each president makes his predecessor look good. Not a very upbeat attitude toward oh, president. My. But anyway, yeah. so yeah. history will judge the people we have now, not judging in the heat of the moment. So, uh, Eric, I don't want to let you go before we have a chance to talk at least briefly about teaching, because you care a lot about teaching. I mentioned a couple of times I've watched the MOOC parts of it, at least, and really enjoyed it. So what's the role of teaching for scholars? 
And now I got a little asterisk for anyone who's not in the business, which is to say 99.99% the people listening to this podcast. Scholarship is everything in top universities in research universities. And teaching, sorry to say, is often considered a distant second fiddle. The best scholars I've ever met, and this is not 100% true, but mostly true, don't believe that at all. They understand the power of teaching. They understand how you can learn from teaching and learn from your students. But I'd like to hear your point of view, because you definitely have been excelling on both. You're right, of course. Now, remember, there are something like 4,000 or so institutions of higher learning in this country, if you community colleges, public colleges, private universities, etc. And most of them, teaching is the name of the game, yes. right? People are not expected to produce a lot yes. of scholarship. But at the famous research universities, Columbia, and where I teach or taught and many others, yes, publish or perish is the mantra. You're not going to get tenure on the basis of good teaching. You may be the greatest teacher, but if you do not publish important scholarly work, of course, that has to be defined, you are not going to have the opportunity to get tenure. So many people feel there's a tension between, I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day. Young teachers often want to focus on teaching. They're closer in age to the students. They understand them maybe a little better. They want to be liked. They want to, they're inspired to be teachers. We have to tell them, yeah, of course, be a good teacher, but don't spend so much time on your teaching that you're not going to be able to produce the scholarship because you will not have your job after a while. But I don't think there's a contradiction there. I enjoyed both teaching and writing research. I think they reinforce each other. I think if you are actively engaged in scholarly research, you're a much better teacher. Teaching forces you to get your ideas in order. If you're going to try to explain something to 20 or 100 or 500 young people, you better know what you're trying to say. You better have it figured out. It forces you to figure out what you're trying to say. But also, presenting ideas to students, hearing their feedback, also makes you a better scholar. You come to realize where you haven't actually figured everything out on some issue, or you're contradicting. Uh, students are very good at pointing out that you're contradicting yourself, you know. <laughs> Half an hour before this, you said this. Now that seems to be the opposite. They're paying attention. Yeah, they're paying attention, and you know, you're right about that. i got to figure that. So I think teaching makes you a better scholar, and I think scholarship makes you a better teacher. I was always, when I taught, I'm retired now, a talk about the scholarly work I was doing, the research I was doing, on books or articles in class. Students like to hear that. They like to feel that their teacher is an active scholar, not just someone who is sitting on his laurels from 25 years ago when he published a book. You know. Now, my mentor, Hofstadter, was not a great teacher. I don't say this in any critical way, really. He, he said to me once, I'm a writer. I teach because I need a salary. And you could see that. He didn't devote a lot of attention to teaching. He didn't like to lecture. He was a modest guy. Lecturing to a large group is partly a theatrical performance also. Hofstadter wasn't that type. Mm -hmm. He was brilliant at dealing with one-on-one. -on -one. He was my PhD supervisor. When I got a draft of a chapter back from him, I really learned about writing, where I got, you know, what I, the mistakes I made, how you actually mm -hmm. craft something into a readable narrative. But in terms of teaching, he would. But, and then... Jim Shenton, who I mentioned a while ago, I think, the guy who taught the first history course I ever took in college at Columbia, he couldn't get tenure today. He didn't publish very much. But he was a beloved teacher to generations of students. There ought to be a place in the university for people like that. Not everybody. It's important to produce new scholarship. But Shenton, boy, mm. I still run into people who were in Shenton, died about almost 20 years ago now. I still run into people who remember his lecture classes as the highlight of their undergraduate career. 
so he had an impact on people. So we should try to do both. I guess that's my answer to you. Yeah, I've seen exactly that about these scholar teachers where teaching is in where they've made their mark. At Dartmouth, there's an English drama teacher named Donald Pease, who's legendary. And I'm actually taking his class this spring since everyone's home. And then one of my mentors, James Brian Quinn, legendary professor. He went to Columbia actually for his PhD and he's passed away now, but he was known around the world for his work on innovation and strategic thinking and places I go now remember him as this amazing teacher. So it's really something to have that impact. When I watched the end of your movie, it was kind of nice, wasn't it? Because what happened at the end, there was a standing ovation among those students. Well, that was the end of my teaching career, uh, really, I suppose. So the students were very nice about that, right? And you remember that, of course. Of course I do. Absolutely. I was very touched. But you know, there is no one true way to be a good teacher. I, thinking back on teachers I've had, as I said, Shenton was a very flamboyant lecturer. Eric McKittrick at Columbia was the opposite. His teaching was sort of just standing there and mulling over a question, putting forward a question and then thinking aloud, how do we figure this out? What do we need to know to understand this, that, or the other thing? It was like the process of thinking about history was unfolding in his lecture. It wasn't dramatic, it wasn't exciting, but it was tremendously stimulating intellectually. There's a million ways to teach, and there's no one system that is right for everybody. Yeah, I think that's actually a good lesson about a lot of things. I've noticed that myself in terms of teaching, that people have different styles and you can't pretend to be something you're not because it's just not going to work out. And that's probably true about people living their lives and how they behave. People talk about authenticity and it's one of these soft, soft words. But there's something to it. You got to be who you got to be and try to get better. You you said it earlier also about the historian being open-minded and having to learn and talk about Lincoln, always learning, always trying to get better. And I think that's a necessity for any one of us. And we can take that lesson from Lincoln as well. Absolutely. So, Professor Eric Foner, thank you so much for spending time with me on the SIDCAST. Fantastic to learn about your work, at least a little bit of it. We could only get so much in one hour. I think there's probably room for a lot more. And also kind of reflecting a little bit about what's going on today in American politics and how to look at it from a historical perspective. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Steve, for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.